You're about to enter Nowhere, California. If you like what you hear, please search for us on iTunes. Uh, look at Nowhere, California, all one word. You can also find us on Facebook.com slash Nowhere, California. Please hit like. And as always, we are very hungry for your feedback. So if you have any requests or anything like that, please send your love, your hate, or your apathy to Nowhere underscore California at Yahoo.com. This is Josh, and currently I'm by myself, but in a few moments we'll have a special guest because, you know what, this is another special presentation of Nowhere, California. You heard me right, this is another special presentation of Nowhere, California. Today we'll be talking with Dave Williams, he is the author behind The Mirrored Heavens, The Burning Skies, The Machinery of Life. Those two books are collectively known as the Autumn Rain Trilogy. He has also written Transformers Retribution. Dave also has a two-part series that will be featured in the Star Wars Insider Magazine. The series will be called Blade Squadron. These are just a few of the titles he's worked on. You're about to hear a conversation between us that delves into every aspect of his career so far. The audio may be askew a little bit, but the conversation is awesome. Please enjoy. Hi, Dave. You there? For sure. How are you doing, Josh? Uh, pretty good, man. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. How's your day been? I gotta love this California kind of winter. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I never get tired of it. I never get tired of people in Southern California bitching about the winter and the weather. And I'm like, wow, you know, all my friends back east sound like transmissions from a doomed polar expedition or something like that. So, uh, so I'm quite happy with it. Yeah, I think they dubbed it the polar vortex this year. <laughs> Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I guess let's just jump right into this, and I guess the best first question would be, when did you start developing your craft and uh, basically start writing? Uh, the day 
Yeah, sounds good. I, unfortunately, I know that pain. I work uh, retail right now, so that wanting to get into the creative world is a uh, nice brass ring to reach for. Did you attend school to hone your talents, or did you continue um, kind of going at um, solo, kind of trial by fire? I trained initially as a historian because I 
people who really know what they're doing, i.e., you know, whether you go to critique groups or whether you know someone who knows what's going on. Um, um, in, in, my, in my case, the guy I owe a lot to is a guy named Peter Watt, uh, who is a Toronto-based sci-fi writer. He has done some work for World Sequel, uh, and I got in touch with him through that. Um, and he started in 99. Uh, he, uh, um, uh, really, honestly, at this point, is, is, you know, possibly one of the best science fiction writers in the world. He, uh, he had, uh, his, his novel Blinds was nominated for a Hugo in 2007. He won the Hugo in 2010 for a short story, The Island. Uh, anyone who's listening to this who hasn't read Blinds, I should run or walk to the nearest bookstore and get it. Uh, it is a tale that just redefines the first contact experience, and I'm quoting Charles for Russell. But Peter and I, you know, long before he wrote Blindside, Peter and I were becoming friends. I was in the long my day job. Um, gradually, it turned out that, you know, I was writing, and of course, I didn't just sort of, you know, ask Peter to read my stuff. You know, we were sort of friends first. Um, and uh, he gave me a lot of good notes on uh, the, the penultimate draft of the Mirror Heavens um, uh, and, and pointed out where it had run off the rails and possibly what I could do to fix it. So I sort of had to figure that out on my own. Um, and, and, and so in a sense, you know, looking up with Peter was, uh, even just getting any of Peter's time, was, you know, uh, probably worth any number of writing courses. Um you know, the, the, the best thing I think you can do, though, you know, is, is you know, what's out there. Read what's selling. Read what actually is marketable. Um, um, and, 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 and I do think that, you know, part of the problem with trying to hone one's craft from a formal education perspective is that most of the writing courses that are out there, formal writing courses, MFAs and what have you, are all about the mainstream literature, right? I mean, it, it, they, they aren't going to necessarily be sympathetic to a science fictional point of view, which they, you know, there's a lot of snobbery involved, a lot of people, you know, in the academy regard that as not art, little realizing, of course, that, you know, we now live in a science fictional world. It's impossible to write fiction without writing science fiction. It's just a question of whether or not uh, you acknowledge that uh, in that sense. Oh yeah, exactly. With a lot of the like past movies that are based in the future, a lot of them, their time frame, or at least the years that they were supposedly uh, based in, are now rapidly approaching. Like everybody's talking about, twenty fifteen is the Back to the Future two year. Yeah, twenty fifteen Back to the Future two year. Twenty twenty nineteen, I think it is, is Blade Runner. Um, it was originally 2020, but they changed it because that was a little too much like an eye exam. Um, yeah. Uh, I, mean, heck, I mean, I remember watching uh, uh, Predator 2 and seeing, the, the seeing you know, Los Angeles 1997 coming up on the screen and being like, oh my God, that's so far in the future. And oh, yeah.
when was the point that you felt like you uh, broke through? Uh, I think really the point where I broke through was where I had, you know, after several years' work, um, I should pull back a second and say, in a sense, you never break through, right? You, you always have another rung to climb up to. You always have a new hunter career. Um, um, you know, there, there, there's, there's always something more to sort of, you know, accomplish. It's always that's the nature of the creative profession. But in terms of actually thinking, wow, something's starting to happen, uh, it was really when the first novel started to get attention. So I, I by attention, I just mean attention among agents. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I had no prior credentials in terms of I never had a short story published. I tried. I'd written a number of short stories and, uh, one got me a positive rejection from Ellen Danlow, uh, who of course used to edit Omni and was the, the, the woman who discovered, uh, the, the, the editor, the great editor who discovered William Gibson. And so just getting a rejection note from Ellen in 2002 saying, you know, I'm passing on this, but I look forward to seeing more of your material. That can be going for years right there. Um, but, but once I had a hundred thousand word draft of the mirrored heavens and going into the hands of an agent, in this case Jenny Rappaport, um, who uh, was with the Lori Perkins agency, um, and you know, I sent her just a partial, I sent her the first 50 pages, uh, and uh, she was like, wow, I think this is the real deal, send me the rest of the novel. Um, you know, because they want to make sure you, you can sell novels on proposal once you sold one novel, but they always want to see you have to have that first novel completed because ninety percent of the people who can a great four fifths of a manuscript can't end the manuscript in a way that's satisfying that makes you go, holy fuck! Yeah. Uh, you know, that took a lot of time to get to. Um, uh, once that novel was written, and she. You know, start to represent me and start to shop it. Um, even there, I was like, well, you know, probably nothing will happen, but at least now I have an agent and I can write something else. Uh, looking at a steampunk, uh, Alexander the Great does steampunk novel, uh, which I eventually did write, and we can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, and then, and then all of a sudden, Random House uh, get off, made a three book offer. Uh, I, I'd written, you know, I'd always planned it by that point as a Jenny was on the manuscript of the whole first novel and outlines for novels two and three. Um, and all of a sudden, I had a three book deal with Random House, and uh, I was, you know, I don't think my feet touched the ground that summer. Uh, at that point, you know, it was a matter of trying to write the rest of the trilogy and trying to sort of break out uh, into the larger marks, both in terms of, you know, novels and fiction, but also. Uh, Yeah, um, you're telling us about the trilogy and everything. The first part was The Mirrored Heavens? Yeah, The Mirrored Heavens. The uh, second novel was The Burning Skies. And the concluding volume is called The Machinery of Life. What was your inspiration behind uh, this work? Taking a look at what war in space would really look like. I mean, ultimately, the book became a lot of other things. And if, I, if you stop me on the street, I would tell you it's the story of 22nd century espionage. Um, my agent called it uh, John Le Carre on sci-fi crash. Um, 
but the uh, the original provenance for it was very much war in space. I have only reused the fly, right? Because and this is again a lot of this uh, uh, you know drone star data and what have you. Uh, but it's very very clear that warfare is undergoing an evolution where actually space is getting weaponized uh, because it is ultimately the high ground. I mean, you look at um, in Gulf Wars 1 and 2, how quickly we destroyed the Iraqi army from a conventional sense. Um, you know, when Schwarzkopf in 91 is hailed as a hero because, you know, my God, he beat an Iraqi force twice our size, etc., etc. And taking nothing away from him, it's very difficult to lose a battle when you can see the enemy and the enemy can't see you. Yeah. I.e., GPS and what have you, we could see exactly where Iraq was. We have space-space capabilities <coughs> and we're looking down from satellites in real time and we can see what they're doing and they can't see what we're doing. The question, though, is what happens when we meet a peer competitor? What happens when the U.S. runs up against the nation that tries to deny us our space-faring our space-faring capabilities, right? If you want an analogy, look at early World War One, right? World War One starts. The plane is not used yet. Trenches are dug across Europe. You have these things called airplanes that were invented ten years ago, and generals are like, "Hey, why don't you go get in your airplane and fly over the enemy trenches?" And then come back and tell us what the hell's going on. Yeah. And, so then you, and that's where we are with space warfare right now. You have planes flying over the enemy trenches and reporting and reconning. But of course, what the general also wants to do is, and by the way, how about you go and put a gun on your plane and do something about all those other enemy planes buzzing over our trenches, telling the enemy what we're doing. And so all of a sudden you have airplanes having guns on their on, on, on the aircraft and shooting at each other. And I would suggest to you that what's going to happen in warfare across the next several decades is that transition in space, which is space is already militarized. It's already used for military purposes, a la GPS. What is going to happen across the next several decades is it's going to get weaponized. People will literally start China, Russia, or whatever our future peer competitors are, will start trying to deny us in a combat situation, or at least in an arms race situation, our space-based capability. You can think of FDI, uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, Reagan Star Wars, as this kind of a thing. Right? Yeah. And then imagine if, and of course what ends up happening is, the Soviet Union couldn't keep up, and Reagan bankrupted them. But imagine if the Soviet Union had actually been able to keep up. All of a sudden, you've had an arms race in space. What I was trying to do with the Autumn Rain trilogy, with, with the Mirror in Heaven, two subsequent volumes, is to posit a future a hundred years from now where the U.S. is threatened in a new Cold War by a new superpower, in this case a combination of a resurgent Russia and a rising China, um, and there's an arms race in space. And you're looking at weaponization of space all the way out to the moon. Uh, and then I was looking at the situation of U.S. agents who are caught in this world, who are wrapped up in this world having to do missions. That was kind of the original inspiration for this, was you know doing a lot of work on what is the U.S. military thinking? And they have a lot of public 
space warfare actually look like? Uh, and that's sort of what I was trying to answer. That's the question I was trying to answer with this trilogy. Yeah. And um, you kind of talked about this a little bit and from the conversation so far, we can tell that you're a science fiction uh, fanboy. How, how did it feel to uh, have a self-created trilogy in your list of credits? Uh, well, it felt as great as it felt surreal. Uh, I mean, I never really sort of thought that would, uh, that would happen. And on the other hand, that was what I've been planning for all along. Um, you know, so, so it, 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 it's, obviously it's something to build on. You know, I mean, you're, you're only as good as your latest work. So, you know, it's all about what you can do next. But, you know, I feel like I had a series of statements to make about history and about technology and about humanity's interface with that technology and about the problems facing our planet and uh, where this is likely to go and where the internet is likely to go because space-based warfare and information or cyber warfare, whatever you want to call it, are really two sides of the same coin. Um, I, had, I had a series of statements I wanted to make about that. And the trilogy was a wide enough canvas that I could make all those statements. And I pretty, pretty much put everything I believe. You know, they say in the Indonesian War, on one level it's a history, but on another level, he's telling you everything he thinks about human nature and about the way history works and the way that, the, 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 the way that humans work in situations of crisis. And what the trilogy was was a case study of the national security state under pressure. Um, you know, and you are in some ways dealing with the book, you know, starts with a terrorist group called Autumn Rain blowing up the world's space elevator. Um, and this was a, you know, being written in the years after 9-11, right? You have a major terrorist having done a major work with terrorism. It's unclear who they are. They're threatening to strike again. There's a worldwide, Earth, Moon, system-wide hunt for them. And I think when you're telling that kind of story, you know, there were certainly obviously a lot of critics who noted that, well, that has a lot of resonance to what's going on today. Um, you know, I was able to maybe, you know, however however imperfectly hold up a mirror to the current crisis and the current situation that we're, we're living in today and tell that story with this trilogy. That, that sounds awesome. I really want to get my hands on these books. Um, you told us a little bit about the steampunk Alexander the Great uh, story. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, that was, uh, that was written, uh, really, that was written when my, uh, or the original idea was when the Autumn Rain novels were being shopped into the marketplace, and my agent did what any good agent does at that point, which is to say, you know, hey, instead of driving yourself crazy wondering if this trilogy is going to sell, how about you come up with something else? And, you know, like I said, uh, you know, themed throughout this conversation history. Um, and if there's one thing I'm particularly interested in, it's probably ancient history. Uh, you know, I mean, the ancient history, Greece and Rome, Alexander the Great, I find fascinating. Um, and one of the things that's uh, particularly fascinating about history is the question of what if. You know, what? nothing that's happened is inevitable. Things could have moved in different directions. The Hellenistic society, we're talking the third century, the century, the, the years after Alexander, was far more technologically advanced than we give you the credit for. I mean, you know, these guys had invented machinery, these guys, you know, 
Nero in Alexandria in the first century AD. That's a fact. You can look it up online. Uh, this isn't one of those ancient astronaut theories. This is actually for real. Um, uh, it was a far more technologically event to get a credit for. Um, and, and, and what I was looking at was that book, and it was a fantasy. It was a steampunk novel. So, you know, I was thinking, well, why should why should the Victorians have all this? That's that's good thinking about that. You recently uh, wrote the book uh, Transformers Retribution. How did you uh, get attached to the world of Transformers? Multiple universes. Uh, this is the universe of the movie. 
Awesome. Um, how does it feel to be a part of the legacy of the Transformers now? Well, it feels great because, you know, Transformers is such an exciting franchise. And uh, this was something that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we're talking about different, different universes of Transformers and different generations. But, you know, what I remember is one. It was the Adaptable Generation 1, of course. But it was the cartoon show on the TV on the 80s. And uh, we loved that stuff. I mean, it, was, it was great, you know. And then the movie comes out with, you know, Orson Welles in it and... Uh, uh, yeah. Megatron, is that you? Here's a hit, blam. Uh, I mean, we, we love that stuff. We grew up on that stuff. Oh, it yeah. Never occurred to, it, it never, sorry, it never occurred to us that people actually write that stuff. Um, um, so the opportunity to actually create is incredibly exciting, and, and it's a great franchise. I mean, you know, something like I said, I came up on as a kid, but now as an adult, as a fully fledged adult geek, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about robots with plasma guns the size of freight trains, you know what I mean? How can you not have fun with that kind of a universe? So what we were trying to do with Transformers Retribution was, um, um, it, it was a great opportunity because they, they, it wasn't just one of those time situations where they say, here's the movie script, go write it. Um, yeah. You know, go, go write the book. Um, we actually had to pitch them an outline and what we wanted to do was to resurrect or I should say reboot a Generation 1 village, in this case the Quintessence, who, you know, the squid-like creatures are always sort of calculating every move and talking percentages and this where everyone innocent gets sent to the death chamber anyway. And we thought, well, that was scary in the 80s. Like, we could reboot that and make it an enemy that ultimately forces Optimus Partron to join forces just to save themselves. Uh, and we came up with that story and pitched it to Random House and to Hasbro, and they laughed. Then uh, we went ahead and wrote the book. That is awesome. Um, you kind of jump for, you're going to be jumping from this uh, pop culture icon to another one with the upcoming uh, two-part short story known as Blade Squadron. Um, what led you into uh, writing this? Uh, well, as I said, I mean, we, we um, Mark and I did in a, uh, uh, one short story in the Star Wars franchise with Star Wars Insider. Um, <coughs> and uh, we got a call from, uh, uh, from my editor over at Random House saying, hey, there's a piece of art left over from Return of the Jedi. And, and I think most Star Wars fans, of course, Star Wars fans will know what I'm talking it, it, it shows the Thar Destroyer, the Devastator, which used to be Darth Vader's personal Star Destroyer. I mean, when you start with the very first movie, you know, of the huge fucking shit just comes right over me. You're, that's the Devastator. Uh, and obviously, Darth Vader, you know, goes on to bigger and better than his flying around in the executor and that kind of thing. But the Devastator participates. 
big idea, we're actually going to give you twice the length we thought, and we're going to make that a two-part story, and we think it's an important piece of art, so it deserves her kind of station. Um, and so we've written the story called Blade Squadron. Um, it tells the story of that B-Wing Squadron and its battle during the uh, struggle at Endor against the Devastator, uh, written both from rebel points of view and from imperial points of view. So on the one hand, it's a sideshow to the main battle, which of course is all about, you know, as we know, can they drop the force deal and can they attack the Death Star? Um, but every battle is filled with infinite epic struggles, and this is one of them that takes place during the battle, and now at last we're going to um, get the chance to tell Star Wars that, that story in or the Insider Magazine later this spring. That's going to be awesome. As a Star Wars fan, I cannot wait to read that one. Um, with this entrance into the Star Wars uh, world, um, do you want to go deeper into that world after this two-part story, or are you going to move on to another uh, field? No, we certainly, we would definitely welcome the opportunity to write more for Star Wars. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's sort of the, uh, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, as it were, as far as, you know, that, that, that's ground zero as far as modern science fiction. So uh, we're always happy to do more work for Star Wars and uh, Lucasfilm. Uh, nothing in the pipeline yet, nothing specific, but certainly if that phone rang, we'd, uh, we'd jump on it. With uh, our show, a lot of uh, like uh, struggling writers or just people that are kind of struggling to find their creative uh, path listen to us. Uh, do you have any advice for them on trying to find that right section they should go for? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing to do is <coughs> to accept that this is ultimately something that's, that's going to take a long time. Uh, you know, that, that, that you know, said, you know, if, if you're a brilliant artist, you know, I'm not saying artists visualize don't work on their craft. They do. Uh, but the difference between a writer who's just a writer who is working at a professional level, there's a huge gulf, and there's a lot of time that needs to be dedicated to it. And ultimately, I think in some ways, you know, it comes down to finding, uh, uh, sort of Star Wars, it comes down to finding out how badly you really want it. I mean, you're going to have to spend an awful lot of time by yourself in a room staring at a keyboard, staring at the wall, staring at what you've written and ripping it apart, staring at what you've written and realizing when there's something when there's not. Um, it's all and listening to their opinion, have them tell you that work that you absolutely believe is awesome is terrible. Um, you know, you have to go through a long walk in that desert uh, to get there. Um, and so in a sense, you know, what, what it comes down to is, you know, don't give up. Keep going. You know, I mean, if you, for a year, you'll find that, you know, anything's happening for 
thinking or whatever it might be. And you have to be willing to dedicate to, to make those kind of sacrifices. Having said that, of course, you know, as Bukowski said, you know, you can't you can't uh, write all the time without living, and writing all the time is not living. You, know, you have to get out there and have a life and have you know interactions with people, um, obviously, because that's what you're writing about. Uh, but really, what I would say is, you know, the the the, the, the one higher advice is don't give up. Um, and be willing to improve, be willing to take advice, and be willing to take criticism on board, but never forget your vision. If you can ultimately get to the point where you have a story to tell that's so, I mean, that's so exciting, you can't wait to get it on, on paper, beyond the point where you're procrastinating, where you're putting off writing, you finally get to a point where you absolutely are burning to get this vision on the paper, that's ultimately the mindset that you want to get into. And anything you can do to get your mindset in that direction is helpful. So once again, uh, Dave, thank you for coming on to Nowhere. Um, where can we find you online, and is there any kind of future projects you want to let us in on right now? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm online at uh, autumnrain2110.com. A uh, bit of a mouthful, but the books are the Autumn Rain trilogy, and they're set in the year 2110. So autumnrain2110.com, um, and, uh, uh, and that's where they can find uh, all things about me and the trilogy and historical material, quote unquote, historical about the world of the early 22nd century and the geopolitical and technology situations. Uh, as far as what I'm working on right now, uh, uh, working on a couple of screenplays, and I'm hoping to get into the market uh, later this spring. Uh, and I'm also doing um, uh, more video game work. So when I first went out to Los Angeles, I was working with Activision on some of the Call of Duty uh, games. And now I've hooked up again with uh, a company called Blackbird uh, in, in Vancouver, which I mentioned earlier, because it's run by uh, former lead designer at Relic, Rob Cunningham. Uh, Earbox has the license. They're remastering Homeworlds 1 and 2, uh, and Blackbird is working on the new Homeworld game, um, which I'm, I'm lead writer on. So I'm flying up to Vancouver a fair amount these days, which is uh, great fun. Uh, you know, so if you're, if you're a Homeworld fan out there, uh, you rest assured that uh, uh, the franchise is in great hands with Gearblocks, and what they and the extended family are planning is just going to blow your mind. That sounds awesome. I am a Homeworld fan, so I cannot wait for that. And I guess now to close, since this is Nowhere California, we do have our uh, trademark closer question. We've asked it to many people, and we want to ask it to you. What is your favorite what-the-fuck movie moment? You know, I have so many what-the-fuck movie moments, but <coughs> the free association one, the one that just jumps into my head is the ending of Time Call, where, you know... But one, you know, I can't remember his name, but the actor, he touches the other version of himself, and they both kind of spiral into this giant ball of fucking flesh, and have this awesome movie villain death that absolutely makes no fucking sense whatsoever uh, from any time travel perspective, but just fucking rocks. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's kind of my WGM moment that, you know, I would, uh, I would really sort of go out on.
That is awesome, man. Once again, thank you so much, Dave Williams, for coming on, talking with us, talking about your career and everything, and good luck with everything in the future for you. 